Hi, folks. Kate Ellis here, co-producer of Order 9066. One of the things we've heard over and over again in our reporting is that many Japanese Americans who were incarcerated did not speak openly about their experiences after the war. For some, it was shame that kept them quiet. For others, it was shikatakanai, the Japanese expression that there are some things that cannot be helped. It was not a happy moment in American history. That's Noriko Sanafuji. She's a museum specialist for the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. We've been collaborating with the museum to make this podcast. This is something that a lot of the time you're kind of trying to forget. So they're busy uh, right after the camp and going about where their life, trying to be like normal as possible. The inclination towards silence has often meant that the children and grandchildren of those imprisoned didn't learn much about the camps from their family. Still, the younger generations have found ways into the history. One of those ways is through the physical remnants of the incarceration, the artifacts that have survived the last 75 years, tucked away in closets, attics, and basements. In between our regular chapters of Order 9066, we're bringing you some of the stories we've heard while creating this podcast. In the next few extras, as we're calling them, we're going to talk about objects from the incarceration, items that offer glimpses into the lives of former incarcerees. It's kind of like detective work in a way. For the past 10 years, Santa Fuji has been tracking down objects that tell the story of the Japanese-American incarceration. Some of them are now featured in an exhibit on display called Writing a Wrong. At the end of this episode, we'll tell you where you can learn more about it. The exhibition includes the original copy of Executive Order 9066, signed by President Roosevelt in 1942. But it's also filled with personal items from the people who were imprisoned. Santa Fuji often meets with people in their homes to see if they have photographs, documents, and other artifacts from the incarceration that offer clues to the larger history. I like to do actually a physical visit if possible, because sometimes you never know to what they have in their garages or like studies, and because the individuals or the family might not think that's really important, historically powerful. But then there's like a hidden gem. Wow, this is really powerful. For younger Japanese Americans especially, these objects have important stories to tell. For the third generation, well, it's a discovery of their identity. I think it's like a self, it seems like a self-discovery. That's another part of their identity has been like hidden away, tucked away, because you never talked about it at a dinner conversation. Norman Ishimoto comes from one of those families. He's a sansei, or third-generation Japanese-American. One of the funny things was that, as a child, I would hear my parents, when they would talk, meet other Nisei or Issei, they would say, oh, well, what camp were you in? And they would say, oh, well, I was in blah, 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 and I had no idea, you know, Manzanar or Heart Mountain or, you know. And they would say, oh, so did you know the, the Sato family? Oh, yes. Uh, they were on the block next to us, or they were in our church. And I'm thinking... Well, you know, I'm in Cub Scouts. It's not like the Cub Scout weekend camp. And so I asked my parent, my mother, you know, what is this camp you're talking about? And she would get really upset and say, don't ask that again. Okay, so I wouldn't ask again. 
When he was older, Norm was able to get some information from his parents, Paul and May Ishimoto. But after they died, he learned even more. Norm and his siblings found some of his parents' belongings from the years they were incarcerated. These were things they'd never heard about or seen before. With Noriko Sanofuji's help, they donated them to the National Museum of American History. So through the Ishimoto family's collection, there are a number of amazing artifacts. But the one stood out was this uh, two Scottish terrier pin that was made by Paul Ishimoto, Norm's father. It's a sort of lapel pin with two Scottish terriers carved out of wood, dangling from strings attached to another piece of wood that has an engraving. It's really cute. Uh, It's fairly small, but each dog is wearing a collar. And one says Paul, and the other one says May. And it's all handmade. And on the top, it says May. And the story is the two May and Paul meets in camp. They were in Jerome, Arkansas. When Paul arrived at Jerome, he volunteered to work in the camp hospital. Very fortuitously. The first time he reports to work, the person he's supposed to report to is my mother. And he sees her and thinks, oh, what beautiful eyes. And from that point, he's smitten. Paul was really like love at first sight. He really wanted to date May. But I think May was not that interested in at first. May was in her early 20s. Her mother had just passed away and her father was dying. She found herself in charge of eight siblings, the youngest just three years old. So my mother, with all of this, could care less about anything, like a date. Uh, She kept telling him, well, I don't think it's possible. He would actually go across camp to attend the same church services that the family attended so he could suck up to his hopeful father-in-law. Paul started carving pins for May, including the terrier pin, with her name emblazoned on each one. So he was making all kinds of accessory to try to win her heart. After a while, he even proposed. But May turned him down. My mother says, don't bother me. I have, you know, I just can't get married. I got too much on my plate. And then she says, about two weeks later, she thinks, oh, okay, I'm done with him. Then she sees this figure in the twilight, in the distance, She didn't recognize him. Then she says, oh, it's him. He hadn't shaved. He had lost so much weight. He says, I can't eat. I can't sleep. I I just have to marry you. And at this point, my mother says, hmm, you look, he looks so terrible. He can't last more than a couple of months. And then I'll be done with him. (laughs) The two get married in April of 1944 in Jerome. And they even actually uh, get a permission to go buy a wedding suit. And we have a maze wedding suit in our collection as well. Norm says they found around 10 pins that Paul crafted for May. Those pins tell one story of courtship and camp. Many other young people dated or got married while living behind barbed wire. Romance was one aspect of life that continued, even in camp. Noriko Sanofuji handpicked many of the objects in the Writing a Wrong exhibit as a way to get visitors engaged in the narratives of the incarceration. 
The pin Paul made is a perfect example. I think it really connected with the visitors because it's a very pretty and cute uh, pin. And then the two dogs on the pin. I thought it was an entry point for when the visitors come that, oh, this is something so precious, but I would like to learn more about the history behind it. So hopefully those entry points work. If you want to see the terrier pin that Paul Ishimoto made for May, head to our website, apmreports.org. There, you'll find a link to the Smithsonian's Writing a Wrong exhibit, which is on display until January 2019. You can also see photos of objects related to the incarceration that other listeners have submitted to our website. And our next extra will bring you the stories behind some of those objects. Order 9066 is a production of APM Reports and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. This extra was produced by Emerald O'Brien and me, Kate Ellis. It was edited by Stephen Smith. Our technical director is Corey Schreppel. Join us next week for the sixth chapter in our series, Protest and Resistance in Camp. Please help us spread the word about Order 9066. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, and Penelope Shala. This is APM, American Public Media.